Hello, hello. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Not in the heat wave as、uh, you are right now. So this week,、uh, this episode, Matt is still coming back from vacation. He's not back yet. So we have a great guest today,、uh, Andy Cloak, and、uh, you're based in London, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've been in London for the last few years. So I found your profile. I don't know. Maybe this is like a year ago. Maybe eighteen months ago. You're a SaaS founder. So the thing that first caught my attention when I was scrolling through Twitter was your one of your projects, Data Fetcher. Because at that time, I I was using Airtable and I was just looking at interesting apps out there that is connecting to Airtable, as they were opening up the platform, allowing. Others to build on it. The API initially was very basic; they didn't have a marketplace. And I think at that point, you were building in public. You were just starting. I think you were probably below a thousand dollars monthly recurring revenue. And I thought, oh, this is this is something interesting. I think it's something that I would like to build myself if I was to build on top of Airtable. But before we talk about Data Fetcher, I think want to hear about more on how you got into tech. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and、um, how you get into? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I studied engineering at university or college, and yeah, I kind of studied like a general engineering course where the idea was you'd specialize by the end of the degree and kind of pick the area of engineering that you're most interested in. Unfortunately, I didn't find that area, and I never quite settled on a discipline or like a part of engineering that I really loved. And I ended up kind of graduating and spending a few months trying to figure out what I wanted to do and. Yeah, I'd always kind of back of my mind had like thought I might want to do coding and software development. So I'd played around with JavaScript a couple of times, built a few websites, built like an Android app that was just a super simple game and stuff. So I think there was that seed was there all along.、Um, and when I graduated, I kind of realised I need to get a career.、Um, and so I moved home for a few months, studied free code camp and kind of other like free online resources, and then got a job as a front end developer doing React startup. And yeah, then kind of bounced around to a few different startups as a kind of freelance React developer, doing contracting. And then yeah, like a lot of developers was kind of doing stuff on the side, doing little projects. Had a couple of small ones that got like a few users, like a language learning app for Spanish, like a football quiz site. But none of them really made any money. They're all kind of B two C, and they were good practice for like getting an app out there and trying to find users and deploying stuff and building like a little backend and stuff. But then in twenty twenty,、um, that was probably the first time when. I had one that actually went somewhere, which was Influence Grid, and that was basically I figured out a way to scrape TikTok influencers from the kind of TikTok app, and then was selling that data essentially to marketing agencies that wanted to work with TikTok influencers.、Um, so it was like a SaaS model; people were paying monthly, and yeah, it grew over a few months, and then managed to sell it in mid twenty twenty. Okay, so we will dive into、uh, Influence Grid in a, in a little bit, but I think there's something really interesting that it might sound. Difficult to understand for someone who didn't have a traditional programming background. I always get this question: They ask me, like, "What should I learn? How how do I get started?" So it seems like it was a very quick jump for you to graduate from university to decide to have a career, and then it went to while、well, I was hired as a React developer. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Like, what was that like? Did you had to do a boot camp? You said you. Did、uh, free code camp? So was that was that it? <laughs>、um, yeah, I can definitely explain that. So、um, 
the big thing to mention first is there was some nepotism involved in terms of the startup that hired me was two of my like best mates from university. Yeah, they just started a company, just raised some money and they needed, they, we knew each other really well. One of them was actually a course mate. And so they were, you know, happy to look past my kind of lack of experience because they just wanted to kind of get me on board. So that was definitely a factor. But beyond that, in terms of doing a boot camp or something, I kind of, I think the main reason to do a boot camp is motivation, right? I think like with coding, like all the information is online. It's a question of like, having peers and having people to point you in the right direction. So I was quite lucky. My next door neighbor in Wales, where I'm from, he was a senior front end developer. And so I basically said to him, like, what should I learn? Should I try and become like full stack? Cause I want to, you know, make products and stuff, or should I just do one bit? And he basically said, focus on the front end, learn react and JavaScript and, you know, HTML, CSS, focus on that, get your foot in the door somewhere. And then once you've got a job, you'll always have an opportunity to learn back end If you start a front end or front end, if you start a back. So that was some of the best advice I got was just don't try and cover every base, just get a skill that makes you hireable. And then you'll always pick stuff up in a job. And I think that actually, I kind of kept going on that theme once I left the startup and kind of started doing contract work. Uh, I got into like React Native development, which is kind of even more specialist in like mobile apps with React Native. And that basically allows you to yeah get higher paid mm-hmm. gigs and get like more desirable skills. Um, so I think it's definitely something in that. And yeah, in terms of resources, it was free code camp. There's a great computer science course from, I think it's Harvard, maybe it's MIT, called um, CS50, which is free and online. And then just watching like loads of YouTube videos and stuff like that and producing projects. So like obviously testing your skills is, and like showing you're actually using your skills to create stuff is kind of a big part of it when you go to apply to a job. So that Spanish learning app that I made, I did that like as I was learning to code, it went to like the top 10 on Hacker News and like loads of people saw it. And actually some of the jobs that I applied to early on after the startup they'd actually seen it on Hacker News. So like putting stuff out there, I think from the start is, is also really important. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, there's still some bits that they wouldn't understand because they would download and let's say a code editor, uh, VS Code. And then when you get your first error or when you're stuck sort of banging your head against the wall, how did you find help? Because well, FreeCodeCam is just a, a wall website and a lot of programming is actually banging your head against the wall. How did you get unstuck when you're stuck yeah so i mean google right like every developer gets really really good at googling things and finding stuff on stack overflow any area you see like when you're starting out in the console or whatever like there's most likely an answer to it online and like that's still something you do almost every day once you're working on a product so learning to find the answers yourself is is a big part of it and then i think the advantage of something like free code camp is it gives you a syllabus like even if you don't do all of it like you can roughly see like Okay, so I start with HTML, then I learn to style it with CSS, then I start with very basic JavaScript, like logging stuff to the console, then I go into loops and if statements, and I kind of you know build it up from nothing, and then that will get you a long way. Like I've not still not learned a second language. Like I learned TypeScript, which is basically JavaScript, but I've never learned like a, you know an additional programming language. So like those basics will get you to making products and to making things. I think yeah, that's the best way to start, and then beyond that, like you know, there's good online communities and, and Twitter and stuff like that, where you can kind of like learn from people who are just like a couple of steps ahead of you and kind of follow like their learning path to work out what you should be doing. Great. That's really good advice for people who are looking into building products, looking at uh, learning programming. That's a uh, great advice on how to, because I think it looks really fascinating that someone can go from not having a traditional background to building products and selling it for thousands and of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars, maybe even like millions of dollars. So let's 
go into Influence Grid, you started on contracting, built some sites that didn't really make money, but it was your leveling up to your programming jobs. With Influence Grid, can you tell us like what, what year was this? Because it was related to TikTok, so I think that's kind of an interesting point. What year was it? What did exactly did it do? And who was the customer? Yeah, of course. The year was the end of 2019. So it's just before TikTok, you know, kind of blew up. It was actually before like most of us had heard of TikTok. TikTok in 2019 was like the most downloaded app in America because they burnt like 200 million advertising dollars, whatever. So like it was massive. It was just massive for like under 20. So like none of us had really heard of it. So it was really, really good timing. And then obviously in 2020, fueled by kind of lockdown, it kind of went properly mainstream, I guess. And my mum had heard of TikTok and like suddenly everyone, it was just kind of part of the zeitgeist, I guess. Um, in terms of the idea, so I was kind of looking for the next project idea and there's a website called Exploding Topics and they basically surface like Google trends data and show like keywords that are like exploding, have suddenly gone from like nothing to like a few hundred monthly searches or a few thousand or whatever, just ones that have got that kind of increase in search volume. And one of them was called nano influencers, um, which is basically people that have like one to 10,000 followers. And supposedly these were like the future of influencer marketing. So everyone's saying because they've got like a closer relationship with their followers, these people are like, everyone's going to do all their kind of brand promotion with these nano influencers, which obviously hasn't quite happened. But like in reading about these nano influencers, um, I was reading all these reports on like influencer marketing and like what, what was coming up in the next year. And the other one that everyone kept mentioning was, TikTok and the fact that like it was a bit of a wild west at the moment there were no tools to like for brands to use but like certain kind of consumer brands and stuff would go viral on TikTok they sell out of whatever product they made and clearly it was going to be like a, a massive thing and Instagram Facebook getting kind of saturated but TikTok was like with the new kid on the block so that's when I kind of had the idea of like what could you build that already exists for Instagram for this new platform and the idea was basically a directory of TikTok influencers so these exist for Instagram. There's dozens of them, mainly because Instagram had like an open API for ages. Uh, they started to shut it down more recently after like the privacy allegations and stuff. But TikTok didn't have an API. So there was no real product that did this that let you find influencers. So say if you wanted to find like a yoga influencer in Norway, like this, you could work with whatever. So like super kind of niche, like search terms like that. And so I found a way to scrape the TikTok app to like get that data and build basically this database of influencers and then basically sold that to marketing agencies and influencer brands and stuff like that. So they would basically pay a subscription. It was like $60 a month and they would basically pay for access to the database. And yeah, it worked quite well in terms of there was such an acute need. And I think it was like one of the first two or three products that did this, that it was actually a pretty easy sale once I got the word out and once people started, once I could contact people. But yeah, there was definitely difficulties with it as well. So the churn was really high. The scraping was quite fragile. So the fact it was just like scraping an app or any business built on scraping is inherently pretty pretty fragile and could kind of go to zero at any point. So <laughs> yeah, I realized I didn't want to do it forever. Uh, yeah, I remember at that time, TikTok was definitely exploding and it was really great timing. And then, and obviously the pandemic hit as well, right? I think while you're, after you've launched and then people were... <laughs> making a lot of videos at home at that time, baking bread. And so there are all these like different micro trends that was happening. But how did you find your first 10 customers? Were they all these agencies? How did you 
reach out and contact them? Like, did you have a plan in mind all along while you're building it? Not exactly. No, a classic developer. I didn't really have a any sort of marketing plan. But um, yeah, I kind of launched it. And then uh, in the first week, I basically, so all these articles that I've been reading about, like influencer marketing, I contacted the author of those, or the authors, and basically, so I found there's a tool called like Rocket Reach you can use to look up someone's email from their LinkedIn. So I got their emails. And then I basically said, I've built this new tool. I think it's the first thing on the market. It might, I think it's like relevant to your audience. Um, would you like to write about it? And of the first like three people I emailed, one of them who had like a massive social media blog, wrote like a really nice like product review and wrote like a tool, published it a couple of days later. And literally the day that he published it, got like the first customer. And so I thought, you know, this is going to be easy. This is how I get customers. I just I do all this outreach. And then I probably emailed another 50 authors and none of them wrote anything or even like barely even replied. So I got really, really lucky with him. But that was obviously to get a customer in the first week of launching was that was enough validation to know that I was on something. So then it was just a question of, yeah, trying to find the next wave of customers and trying to find like a, a scalable marketing channel, not just this kind of one and done like outreach. Right. And did you find that channel? Yeah. So in the end, it was SEO. So I built all these landing pages. I kind of like built some programmatic landing pages. So I used the data that I had to be like top Canadian influencers on TikTok or whatever. So it kind of generated all these um, kind of skeleton articles. And I had like hundreds of pages on the site that all brought in a trickle. And then I added a other kind of set of landing pages that was like features. So it'd be like TikTok user search or TikTok profile search. TikTok hashtag search, like all these things that just really just described one of the features of the product, but it were things that like people were searching for. So that was the one in the end that really drove the growth. And they took probably three to six months, probably three months before any of them started like properly ranking and bringing in lots of traffic. By the time I sold it, they're probably bringing in a thousand visitors a day. And then like one or two would convert to customers. Yeah, that was the scalable one and, and that worked. And then in the meantime, obviously SEO takes like a long time to kick in. The other one I did was so it's kind of a bit of a hack, but basically I had all these influencer profiles um, and they, the descriptions they had in their profiles. And a lot of the bigger ones are represented by talent agencies in the profile. They had an email for like, I'm represented by so-and-so-talent.com. And so I basically pulled out all those domains from the emails and then found them on LinkedIn and contacted them and said, I can see you're representing these five people. I'm going to help you find the next 10 people that you want to represent before anyone else does. And so contacted them and, and was basically just doing LinkedIn outreach like that. And that worked really well as well, actually. That was, I think it was like 10 or 20% kind of conversion rate from like messaging someone to them signing up. Now, obviously, there aren't that many TikTok influencer talent agents or marketing agencies, but there were, yeah, there was a good like 20 or 30 customers I was able to get through that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but at least it's an exploding trend. So I, even there weren't many initially it's always good to be in a growing market, right? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. And that actually worked really well for the um, SEO as well. So all these search terms, like Canadian TikTok influencers, or whatever, there'll be like no traffic when I first made the pages, but over three months or something, it started going up. So all these things like started as a trickle and then the, the both like the SEO traffic and then the number of customers just kind of went up over time. Right. And then you actually sold it. So do you remember the revenue, uh, like approximately revenue, and what was the sale price? Yeah, so the revenue was about 3,000 MRR, and then the sale price was $55,000. So like a relatively low multiple, but there was quite a few 
reasons. So like one of them I mentioned was the scraping. The scraping was like figured out, but at any point it could have, TikTok could have found a way to mitigate against it. In terms of service, they even had a competing product called like the brand marketplace. So there was just this big thing of like, if this gets really big, then TikTok will probably shut it down. So it's kind of in this sweet spot. Also, there's just like a technical risk if it could go to zero. So that was that was a big one. And then another thing that kind of reduced the multiple was just the churn. The churn was crazy. It was probably like 30% a month or something. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So like every three months, you're going through your entire customer base. Main reason for that was so people that are using it are like, they're doing campaigns, right? So they're doing, they need to find a load of influencers for a campaign, but then they might cancel as soon as they've done that. So I'm going to use it for a month and they might sign up again in six months. We you know, didn't know that yet. Yeah, it's just a hell of a lot of churn. And so even though it was growing like a few hundred dollars in MRH each month, it's like it never really felt that sustainable. And then the last reason was just that I wanted to get rid of it. I wanted to do a project that thankfully I found now that I was like more interested in that had like kind of better, I guess, like market dynamics and that didn't feel, yeah, quite so kind of risky. So the other thing was, yeah, I just wanted to kind of cash in, de-risk, and then in particular, like get the money up front, not have like some sort of earn out or even like you know a lot of people want to do like revenue based financing or whatever where they where they pay it off over time but i wanted like at least half or ideally all of the money up front and so that was kind of another thing that reduced the multiple so when you look at things on microquire now that maybe at three i think it was at three and a half so look at stuff on microquire now that's three and a half at mri you'd probably expect it to go for like so maybe like 100 100k it's a little bit less than that and i was still pretty happy with it to be honest and where did you find the buyer yeah, I'm actually not sure because I didn't post on any sort of marketplaces. Or I posted on uh, MicroKai, but I didn't really have any serious people through that. Then the other places I post were like Indie Hackers, Hacker News, LinkedIn, Twitter, and like a couple of other forums and stuff. So kind of there was quite a few Hacker News. Like it stayed, it didn't go to the top or anything, but it, like it got a fair few people through that as well. So I think it was one of those platforms. I never actually found out, but I basically yeah, kind of posted them all at the same time and then had probably like 10 calls with people that came through with like a bunch of different questions and stuff not actually sure i did look at flipper and they basically take 10 or 20 percent however much the problem is with them they take it so even if you list but then you find a buyer from somewhere else they still want 10 percent. if you sell through them or you sorry if you list through them and sell through someone else they still want their cut because i guess for them it stops people kind of going off platform and cutting them out so yeah, I decided that was kind of a backup option. I do wonder if I might have got more on there, but didn't end up posting on there. And then it was kind of very early days for MicroQuire. I think today I'd probably commit to MicroQuire and I think you'd probably get a lot more interest through there, but it was quite early on for MicroQuire. So I just don't think there was quite the buyer numbers on there that there would be today. Was that the first time you sold a digital business online? Yeah. I mean, it's the first time I'd had a business that made any sort of revenue like that. And then the first time that, yeah, I'd sold it for sure. And now that you're looking back in terms of your expectation going into the process yeah. and now you've experienced it, was there any things that you learn or any surprises in the process? Yeah, I mean, loads, right? Firstly, it was just kind of really motivating to actually kind of make some good money from doing something online. So like, I think, I, you know, as a lot of kind of indie hacker type people do, you sacrifice like a lot of nights and weekends. If you've got a full-time job, then yeah, you end up spending a lot of your spare time doing, hacking away on these projects. and often just without any sort of results. And so just actually just making like, you know, like a good like annual salary for like six months, like that was just really exciting to make the money. But then also just in terms of learning, like so many um, things in terms of understanding a market a bit more and how 
kind of the market you pick and the pricing model you pick as well, like how that will affect your business. So I mentioned like the campaign nature of like influencer marketing. I realized like both that and then the fact I didn't really have any good like usage metric, like you want for a lot of SaaS things. So like I had no way to kind of get people to start on one plan and upgrade to other ones that really work well. So like realizing that's super important was another big learning. And then, yeah, just doing the marketing and, and that side of it and trying understanding that you've got these kind of two groups of marketing channels. So you've got one that's like one and done, which is product ton, outreach, all these, you know, like posting it on Facebook and that kind of stuff. But it's not really scalable. So you probably need another one if you're actually going to grow long term. And that's usually SEO or, or like YouTube or something where you can actually produce like more and more content. Obviously, those are quite broad brushes. There's loads of different marketing channels like paid and stuff like that. But yeah, kind of understanding the difference between like those two types of channels was, was like a massive learning as well for, for Data Fetcher. And was the sales process smooth? How long did it take from the point that you listed on these marketplaces till the money actually hits your bank? Yeah, I think it was about a month total. So it was pretty quick. Yeah. So mm. probably like a week or two of posting about it, doing a load of calls. Then I think I had a letter of intent from the eventual buyer and I think it was a couple of weeks more of them doing their due diligence where they look at you know stripe and stuff like that yeah in the end they just they closed and I mean you could really tell on the calls when you spoke to people like who was serious who wasn't who was there's a lot of chances right especially for something like this in like an influencer marketing like quite like a trendy topic I guess at the time like there's a lot of people who were like they'd say they were going to buy it, but they weren't going to pay anything and they needed me to work on it for six months and then they would keep all the profits. And you're like, really? Yeah, that doesn't sound like a great deal. Like, there's no way we're going to, there's no way we can do that. Someone else told me that he said, let me tell this to you. I'm a very important man in the world of international business. I will hire you and you just get all these crazy people basically. And so the ones that I spoke to had a business of five years in the Instagram niche. They seemed super serious. They knew what they were doing. They'd been trying to acquire something for quite a while but to kind of diversify from Instagram. And because I'd been super transparent about everything, they, I think they respected that. Like they could see the Twitter timeline of me building in public. I'd put a Google doc of basically everything that I could think of about the business. They were really keen to get it done. I think it all went pretty smoothly. Yeah. The kind of strange thing at the end was they didn't use um, an escrow service. I had a business bank account, but couldn't do international transfers. So they just wired the money to my personal account. Obviously I then moved it to my business account, but like I just woke up one day to like, a notification of like having like 55 grand in my personal account and then i handed over the keys to them but like and we had a contract and stuff obviously but i think stuff at this price is kind of strange right it's not big enough to get like lawyers and stuff involved so you kind of just you're your own lawyer and you kind of just do it yourself but it all feels a little bit a little bit sketchy but i mean luckily i think if they'd asked me to hand over the keys and then they'd wire the money i think i would have at that point would have been like no we're going to use an escrow thing but they were happy just to send over the money and then and then me to give them everything so yeah, it was all just in like a last pass and I just like handed that over to them and they had the keys to like all the different services. That's always interesting because um, as soon as that money goes out to the buyer, <laughs> you could literally run away. Uh, were they in the same country? No, they were US. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, even trying to get that back, right? I mean, taking you to court, I think it's not going to be worth it. So technically you could have just continue <laughs> with yeah. the business <laughs> and i think that's some of the risks that people are willing to take with us with smaller deal sizes like that right interesting so when you were selling this did you already have the next project in mind like what was your mental state at that point did you just want to get rid of it and work on this next thing that's already lined up or you didn't have anything i didn't have anything i think that's definitely a better way to do it instead i went through this kind of like 
so I'd quit my job actually as well for context. So like a month or two before selling it, it had gone from like 1000 MRR to like two or 3000. And so I thought like, this is actually taken off and I could see like it was the rise of TikTok and stuff. So I was like, I'm going to quit my job for a few months and do this. And then I realized working on it full time, I was like, I'm miserable. I want to, want to sell it. So I sold it. And then initially like, yeah, I was just, just really excited and had this money in the bank. So I feel like I kind of bought this freedom to at least like take my time and think about the next idea. But then the difficulty of coming up with a new idea, like really kind of dawned on me. And I, I spent probably, yeah, one or two months every day reading, scouring product hunt, reading newsletters, like reading forums and just trying to come up with that, that next idea. It was a pretty t- trying time in terms of just like questioning myself and thinking like, can I come up with something else? And I think the thought that kept coming up was what if the one thing I ever thought of that made any money because it's so hard to get that first customer what if the one thing that i come up with that made money i just got rid of that and i don't come up with something else and obviously it was probably i was catastrophizing quite a lot and being a bit negative but like i just kind of fell into this slight funk of like oh no i'm gonna have to go and get like a real job in the next couple of months <laughs> and i guess it was combined with lockdown as well so there's kind of nothing to take your mind off it and it was all like a little bit trying but um i went through the, this phase of about yeah like a month or two where it, each week I'd try a new project and I would just like come up with something almost kind of like that 12 startups in 12 months thing where I just kind of like try and launch something, even if it was literally like just a newsletter or just something like, like a little landing page or something, or just like create like some sort of like tiny tool and tweet about it and see if there was any interest. And I probably did that for, yeah, four or five tiny little projects. And eventually kind of somehow that, that process led to data fetcher. So that was yeah, thankfully got there in the end, but I definitely, now if I was to ever sell data fetch, I would only do it if I had the next idea lined up, I think, or it was enough of an exit that it's like, okay, like I'm done now. Like I don't need to like consider starting something from, from scratch again. I could just like buy property or something like that time was a, uh, was a little bit tough actually. Okay. So talk to us about data fetch. What is it? Were you trying to scratch your own itch? So yeah, funny enough, I was. So one of those projects that I tried to launch was a newsletter about like upcoming IPOs. So when there's a big IPO, a lot of people in finance, whatever, like know about it, but kind of retail investors and stuff don't necessarily know it's going to happen. Um, and so I thought, what about like a newsletter that alerts you when there's going to be an IPO in the next couple of weeks? So you can try and like, buy the shares on the, the day launches, whatever. My idea was to manage this newsletter from Airtable. I'd heard of Airtable. It seemed to be really popular and growing. I thought, just as a way to learn it, why don't I put all the content in Airtable and I could almost kind of generate the newsletter automatically from that content. And then I started looking for a way to get financial data, like stock prices and IPO, like calendar, into Airtable in the first place. And I couldn't see like an easy way beyond like writing a script. There was no kind of like Zappy or anything like that. So I couldn't really understand like how I'd do that. And then I gave up on the the newsletter idea, not because of that, just because I didn't think it was going to work. And yeah, went through a couple of other different ideas. And so, yeah, probably like a month later, I was looking on Product Hunt, uh, doing my kind of daily like crawl of like all the latest products, kind of come up with something. And I saw there was a Google Sheets add-on called API Connector, which is basically what Data Fetcher is for Airtable, but for Sheets. And it seemed to be really popular. So it had like, they had on the landing page that they had 100,000 registered users. And I was thinking like, yeah, they've converted you know, 1% of that. They've got 1,000 customers. And basically what it let you do is for kind of like semi-technical people, you could put in like an API URL and method and headers and stuff like that. And then it would connect to that API 
for anyone that doesn't know what an API is, it's basically the way that like different internet kind of services and platforms kind of talk to each other. And so you could connect to an API and like pull in data from, from Google Analytics, from stock price APIs, from crypto APIs, from all sorts of different things. You could pull that into Google Sheets. And because I'd had this problem of Airtable with the financial data, I thought, what if I could build this for Airtable and just make exactly the same thing, but for Airtable? So I looked into like, is there a way to build add-ons for Airtable? And this is where it was just really fortunate timing. They had an app marketplace and they probably had like 20 apps on there. And a lot of them were just built by Airtable. It would be like a chart app or something. There's a couple of other ones from different companies. Like I think it was a Typeform one and a couple of others. And then there was kind of rumors and some kind of sort of signals that they were going to open this app marketplace up to anyone. So that any like third party developer or small company or whatever would be able to develop these. They were called blocks at the time. They were called apps until a couple of months ago. They're now called extensions. But yeah, that anyone would be able to develop one of these extensions. I basically got to work and used this API connector as like a basis, but I didn't like completely just rip it off. I wasn't like, I'm just going to make a clone of this for Airtable, partly because it just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And I thought, do like a better job on some things as well. And then also just, the advantage of an add-on or like an extension like this is native to the platform. So if you just build a kind of generic solution that could work on any sort of different platform, like differentiated, it's not going to be the best thing. And you're just going to be competing with like tools that do work for every platform. So instead, I think like my strategy was go really deep into like the Airtable and actually make it use the nuances of the Airtable platform and like things like in Airtable, you can link different records and different tables so let it do like link records and all sorts of things like that that would kind of allow me to market as like the Airtable app to get places to get data and sorry from from other places so that was the origin story and then the nice thing about the api connector part of it was i then kind of reached out when i launched on product hunt to anna who makes api connector and said full disclosure um want to credit like anna who makes api connector this is where i got the idea i don't think it's a complete ripoff and all the things i just said and then she was like oh this looks great she's tried it out we're not really competing and she's end up copying features that I've built in DataFetcher into her app as well. So we kind of have this symbiotic relationship now where we kind of both help each other out and she advises me a lot. And yeah, it's worked really nicely. Whereas she had had copycats that had literally just ripped her off and obviously had a, not such a positive relationship with her. Interesting. So now I'm starting to see a trend. Uh, so for <laughs> Influence Grid, you're looking at a trend that was growing, which is TikTok. You notice that there was a similar app, but for Instagram. So basically you took the inspiration from this other platform and migrated over and built another. It's not a clone, like you said, but something that is tailor-made for a different platform. But the idea came from there. And then there's Data Fetcher, which is something similar, AI API connector from spreadsheets, and you move it to Airtable. So do you remember how, again, how did you get your first 10 customers? Yeah, sure. On the trend thing, that's 100% my trick. That's the approach. And it's worked for, for two out of two products. I don't know if uh, it'll work forever, but I think like it works really nicely for kind of these opportunities that aren't, they're not the next phase, but they're not game changing, but they are a way to like build a profitable business for one or two people. So I think building on someone else's platform like that can work really well. And that is basically how I got the first 10 customers. So being one of the first apps on a marketplace, which it was, basically meant that a lot of people just install it just to kind of check it out and, and see what does this do? Can I use it? Is it useful to me? And so most of the customers, especially early on, were just coming through. They'd install the app. I think one thing I did do here was 
which is quite important, was having a free plan. So I had no idea how much to charge, whether to do a free trial, free plan, whatever. So I looked at Shopify apps and just kind of looked at like what's standard pricing and stuff. And a lot of them, almost all the Shopify apps that were huge, had a free plan and then various different pricing tiers. And so I did that. And what that meant is that people could, they could sign up, they could use it for a few days, a few weeks, sometimes even a few months and just use it at like a low level. And then once they had a use case where they're like, right, I need to use this more or I need to schedule this and run it like every night automatically or whatever, rather than manually, then they'd pay for those features. And that worked quite well, like free to paid ratio was like 10% or something in the early days, um, right from the back. So like even before like the product was very sophisticated, that yeah, free sign up rate to like paying customers was always quite high. And yeah, that was probably the first 10 or 20 customers. And then I did kind of things I mentioned before, like product hunt, went on a couple of podcasts that were Airtable specific, all these kind of one-time things that also just made people aware of it. There was uh, also like an Airtable community, like a community forum, subreddit as well, and like a Facebook group and stuff. And the nice thing about it at the moment is those subreddits and forums and stuff, they're still small enough that like you can spam them if it's relevant. Obviously in big, especially on Reddit, like if you do any sort of self-promo, normally people clamp down on it pretty hard. But the Airtable community is kind of small enough and like people kind of do it on, on good faith and are, are kind of happy. They kind of know your story a bit and know app developers know each other and, and kind of people know each other. And there's not really too much animosity if you if you just kind of promote your products a bit. So if it's relevant, right? So I don't do it every couple of weeks or whatever, but like if I've got a big new feature out that loads of people I know are going to need, then I'll, I'll post about it and, and people are pretty like be happy to see that. Great. I think that's a very actionable plan or framework figure out a community or a platform that is growing exploding trying to figure out for other platforms what is popular and then see if there's an opportunity there so for anybody out there right now or or let's let's imagine if i knew data fetcher today and you have to use this playbook again what would be something that's on your radar right now yeah definitely notion like it seems to just like Airtable's growing a lot, but Notion just seems to be next level in terms of like the growth. One really popular product I've seen on that is like Notion Forms, where Julian basically took the fact that like Airtable, you can just for free as an Airtable user, you can create forms that add a record to your table. He basically took that concept and built it for Notion. Yeah, it's growing like crazy. And I think the nice thing about a product like that in particular is like because you've got a free tier. And people are making forms and that link back to your site. Um, it's just got this inherent like viral loop. But yeah, Notion, especially since they launched the API like a few months ago, I'd definitely be looking at at tools on there. In terms of other platforms, I think all the no-code ones like Webflow as well. Just looking at like what exists on WordPress that I can build for Webflow. WordPress is there's hundreds of apps, right? And like some of them are, are massive and been around for ages, but there's new no-code site builders that are taking over. So like Bubble and Webflow. So just looking at stuff that's worked on WordPress and, and bringing it to Webflow and then being careful, like you don't want to just do the like research for all these platforms. So like you don't just want to build something that they're obviously going to add in the next, you know, six, 12 months. And that's really hard, right? Because it's, it's really hard to know what, what's coming up. But like there are things you can look at that basically say like feature requests on their forums and them saying, yeah, we're, we're coming to this. We're going to improve our mobile app or whatever it is. I think there are things that you can kind of do to try and, avoid building like just ahead of them and doing their customer research for them and then just building it and wiping you out. That's 
the big scary thing about building on a platform like this. And obviously that still, you know, kind of worries me that if that's, that's probably my biggest concern or, or biggest thing about this whole framework is like, you've got to be super careful of being on someone else's platform that you don't just become um, irrelevant when they, when they add the same feature, but for free or whatever, I'd say like the no code website builders would definitely be one that, that I'd look at. So we're coming up on our time. Is there anything else, any last words that you have for our audience? I think the biggest one I've learned recently is just like not being afraid to like challenge your assumptions. So there's been a lot of features that people have asked for that I've assumed were impossible to build. And then I find out that there's a Heroku add-on that lets me do it in like half a day. So just like constantly revisiting your assumptions. And then the other one is kind of the importance of seeing people use your app. So a lot of people talk about like, talk to your customers about their general needs. Don't mention your app. Like you don't want to bias them and, and make them um, talk about your app you should just talk at like a high level but actually doing like loads of research and watching people use your app i've launched this thing recently where anyone can book a support call even free users and i'll get on a call with them and, and watch them try and do something and help them out and seeing that i've discovered like bugs and little ux problems that have been in the app for like two years that i would never have got because no, someone would never have emailed them so just yeah actually watching people use the app is probably like the quickest way to improve it and it, it sounds super obvious but i think there's so much advice about just like not doing that. I think that's a really important one. Mm -hmm. And uh, build in public because you even share your uh, monthly recurring revenue, right? For a data fetcher on your Twitter profile. And it's getting close to that 10K per month uh, mark, right? Yeah, I should cross it this month, which is really exciting. Excellent. Yeah. Well, <laughs> definitely perhaps prepare a, a bottle of champagne when, <laughs> when that happens. <laughs> yeah, we'll be uh, all rooting for you. And where can people find you online? Yeah, so datafetcher is datafetcher.com. And then my Twitter is cloakhead. So my surname head on Twitter. So uh, yeah, those are the two main places. Excellent. So uh, I'm going to sign off on the show. Show notes can be found on buygrowrepeat.com. I am at Johnny Tong on Twitter. And this episode is edited by Rory Jankukau. You can find his Instagram on at Radio Rory. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.